and welcome to our latest IIEA uh, Insights event. Today we have the pleasure of discussing transatlantic trends in a time of war with Bruce Stokes, who is currently a visiting senior fellow at the German Marshall Fund. Previously, he was a former director of Global Economic Attitudes at the Pew Research Center, uh, where he assessed public views about economic conditions, foreign policy and values. Uh, and he was a former international economics correspondent for the National Journal and a former senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Thank you very much for joining us, Bruce, and good morning. Um, we're we're going to hopefully talk about um, transatlantic relations in, in a time of war. Um, but the starting point is the uh, transatlantic trends, which you have overseen for the German Marshall Fund. Uh, and before we get to the latest results of this uh, survey, perhaps you'd like to just explain a little bit what this is, because it's been it's it's an ongoing project over many years. Yes, thank you, uh, David, and thanks for the uh, invitation. And I look forward to the conversation. Um, yes, the Transatlantic Trends Survey is done by the German Marshall Fund of the United States, which uh, was created by the uh, German government in the 1970s to thank the American people for uh, the Marshall Plan. And um, we did the survey for about 10 years, and I worked on it, I know, two of those years. Uh, and then uh, basically they had trouble raising money for it. And so it, it, it died for a couple of years. We've now brought it back uh, with the good support of a number of funders and, uh, and work with the Bertelsmann Foundation in large part uh, on this. Uh, and uh, we've now done it for three years and we have 14 countries this year. Um, uh, 12 uh, in Europe, uh, plus the United States and Canada. Um, our goal is to do this every year uh, with about that number. We think it's, it's about the right number of, of Eastern Europeans and Central Europeans and Western Europeans and, and folks on this side of the Atlantic. Um, and, um, you know, it's a, it's a demographically representative survey of these countries. It's uh, 1,500 people uh, and uh, with the right balance of men and women and younger people and older people, et cetera. Um, and it's, we've developed some, uh, some uh, well, I find some very interesting results. As a, uh, We did this survey, by the way, uh, the last week of June and the first week of July. Uh, so the war in Ukraine had already begun. Uh, but of course, uh, more recent events aren't, aren't uh, reflected in people's opinions. Okay, so that's the background. Can you tell us what are the kind of your main takeaways from 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 this year's survey? Well, there's a couple of interesting uh, developments. Some I think predictable, but others quite surprising. Um, uh, two thirds of the people we um, surveyed on both sides of the Atlantic said the U.S. was uh, had the greatest influence in global affairs. Uh, I don't think that's surprising necessarily. And a similar percentage said that the U.S. was the most reliable, or they saw the U.S. as, as quite reliable. Um, only 17% saw the European Union as the, having the greatest influence. Only 13% saw China, which was actually a little bit lower than I might have expected. And almost no one, only 6%, saw Russia as, as uh, uh, the, having the greatest influence. What was interesting is that two-thirds of Poles, Portuguese, and Lithuanians saw the U.S. as the most influential actor and what's interesting in that, you know, kind of analyzing that particular question was that for not the first time and not the only time, the Portuguese and the Poles tend to love the United States right now. Poles, I can kind of explain because almost every question, they're very high because of the, the war, I think. Portuguese, I don't understand at all, 
but they truly love the United States at this moment. Um, whereas what's interesting, and we see this again and again in the survey, and again, the survey was taken before the Italian election, but it could have actually forecast, I think, the outcome of the Italian election. In answer to almost every question, the Italians were the most or maybe the second most um, downbeat about whatever the question was. Uh, and I, in, in doing survey research for the last decade, what has been interesting to me is that you sometimes find this in a country where um, uh, literally I, I like to joke, you know, if you ask people how they felt about the sun coming up in the morning, they'd be negative about it. I mean, there, there's a gloom that pervades certain societies at certain moments in, in time. Uh, and it, it really doesn't matter what you ask them. They, they just, they're, they're negative and the Italians were. Now what's interesting, and I think um, a challenge for America and Americans need to take this in and try to figure out why this is happening. We also asked people this year, who do you think will be the, have the greatest influence in global affairs in five years, which is not that far away. There was a 27 percentage point decline among our respondents in terms of <clears throat> the, um, whether they thought the United States would be the most influential actor. Now the US was still considered the most influential actor, but that's a huge drop. And um, yeah, China went up a bit, the EU kind of didn't change that much, went down a little bit. But the point being that there's a pessimism, a wariness or worried wariness about where the US will be in five years. Now, we don't know why, uh, it, one of the challenges of survey research is you don't know what people were thinking when they answer the question the way they did. Um, and frankly, to be honest, they don't know either. I mean, you're asking people an emotional question, not a, not a rational. It's not like they've laid awake at night and thought if anybody calls me on the phone or asks me, you know, what are the three reasons why I think the U.S. won't be the most influential actor? It's just an emotional thing. And, um, but people are pessimistic. And um, this is particular about the US future. And this is particularly true in Italy and France and the Netherlands. So it, it is something I think US officials need to look at very uh, closely. The good news for the EU, by the way, is that eight in 10 people in our survey thought the European Union was important for the security of for their country of their country the national security of their country and you know in first blush you would say how's that compared to nato well yeah. it's eight and say nato is important but what were they thinking because i must admit when you'd ask me about national security i think about military yeah clearly people either they're ignorant of the fact that the eu doesn't have an army which i don't think they are ignorant about that or they more broadly define national security than say maybe uh, foreign policy experts or national security experts do. Um, we don't know what that definition includes. I think one can presume it has something to do with immigration, may have something to do with economic security, um, but it is very interesting that people uh, even though they don't see the EU as a, having a great influence in global affairs, they do believe that it's terribly important for their national security. Now, 
This is in the wake of the EU imposing some economic sanctions on Russia. So that may be part of it as well. But um, if, frankly, if I were in Brussels and I was working the EU, I'd be very pleased with these results. Well, as you know, uh, people who work for the EU clutch onto any sign of positivity, right? <laughs> well, what, I, what I've joked that oh, I'm sure I'm sure I we mean will this, have that with, with enthusiasm. I mean, I, I, I joke, but I, I and I mean this in all sincerity. If the same question had been asked by the EU barometer, you know, the, the Euro barometer, I would have questioned the results because, <laughs> I mean, yes, but yes. we have no, we have no stake in this game, right? right. And it, we found those results. And I think that um, uh, it's pretty good news for, for the European Union. It is. Uh, tell me, you, you mentioned, um, th there are two things I'd like to just deepen a bit. One is um, people talk about, you know, a growing East-West divide in, in Europe, um, particularly, you know, commitment to Ukraine or a sense of vulnerability, which increases mm -hmm. the further east you go and decreases the further west you go. Um, was there evidence of that in, in, in your survey in the responses you got? Uh, there was, but there was also this interesting, because of the Portuguese responses, actually, right. that it's, it, there's almost a periphery of Europe kind of, of uh, thing that's uh, evolved here, which, you know, frankly, can't totally explain, but Portugal and Spain, in many of the answers to these questions, looked like Poland or Lithuania, uh, rather than uh, being, you know, looking more like France or or, or Germany or whatever. Um, but you're right, um, and I and again, we can't separate it from the fact that we're in the middle of a war, and the U.S. has been very supportive militarily uh, in this war, uh, supportive of Ukraine. But for example, but we asked people. Uh, do you approve of President Biden's handling of international affairs? And a majority of people in the survey, 55% said yes. Uh, you know, strong partisan differences in the United States. Republicans said no. The Democrats said yes. But what was interesting in Europe was that Biden's strongest approval were in some of the frontline states in the Ukraine conflict, you know, uh, uh, in, in Poland and in Lithuania. Um, and um, this is actually a little bit different because I can remember in doing Translating Trends surveys more than a decade ago, um, the polls were always kind of wary, especially of Democratic presidents. They kind of liked these, they liked Republican presidents better. They thought they would stand up to the Soviets more. Um, and yet they are very enthusiastic about the way that Biden has stood up to Putin in the Ukraine conflict. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think myself that uh, the way President Biden and particularly his team uh, have managed to, to build a coalition uh, has been a, a huge achievement for, for an administration which, frankly, had a rocky enough start in yes. transatlantic yes. relations. Um, uh, the, the way they went about building that coalition uh, was was hugely impressive. And uh, I, I think it, I think it reflects the fact that, and what I've said to European audiences again and again is that you're not going to get an administration that is more Europeanist than this administration. Yeah, that this is a a unique combination of men and women uh, at very senior levels who really believe in the transatlantic relationship and are committed to it. I like to joke that 
Biden has probably spent more time in Europe in his years as a senator and vice president than any U.S. president since yeah. Dwight Eisenhower. And he lived in Europe during the war. I, and, and I think that, you know, we can't presume that it's going to get any better than this. And and I agree with you. I think that that uh, Europeans see this. Um, yes, we have differences and we fight over different issues and we'll fight over issues in the future. But um, uh, right now, there's, there's, I think, a great deal of, of appreciation in Europe for the Biden administration's efforts. Um, and um, what's interesting is that one of the questions we asked was, uh, do you think that the, uh, that the U.S. involvement is important for the defense and security of Europe? So we asked Europeans this. Um, and uh, in France, the, uh, it's about six in, in 10 uh, people say, yes, the uh, U.S. involvement in the defense and security of Europe is important. It's, it's three quarters of Germans who say this. And you might expect that given the Ukraine war. But the real jump was be, be from 2020 when Trump was still president to 2021 when Biden became president. So all of a sudden, in France and Germany, two key countries, obviously, in NATO, um, there was a dramatic increase, 10 percentage points or more, uh, 14 percentage points in Germany, um, that uh, where people said the U.S. is important for our defense. Uh, and we, we think that was a reaction to what Trump had done and said. Yeah. Well, we, I, I want to get your thoughts on, on that as we, as we go forward. But the other question I wanted to ask, you, you, you have quite significant demographic breakdown. You, 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 you're representative by Democratic. What, what, was, there, was there a difference between the various demographics? I, one thing which struck me just looking at it this morning was in the UK, um, you, I think you said that there was a much, by the way, for our, our Irish audience, I should say Ireland is not included in your survey on four. That's true. A regrettable oversight, which you will no doubt correct. In, in Abs absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but um, for the UK, there was significant uh, difference in the positivity towards the European Union between the sort of 18 to 35, I think, versus the 65 plus, which we, we kind of knew from the referendum, but it's still interesting that that persists. And, and what's interesting also is that in the UK, um, a majority of people said they thought that EU was was uh, important for their national security. And frankly, I, did, I don't know what they were talking about. You know, <laughs> I mean, um, uh, but, you know, it is what it is. You, you want to kind of say to people, have you ever heard of Brexit? I mean, yeah. but um, uh, the what we did see, I think, in a number of cases, and again, is what might be expected, is that young people tend to have a different view of things than older people, people my age. Um, and uh, you saw this uh, in uh, the United States, for example, there was no change uh, in attitudes of, will the US be the most important player in the world in five years? The young people said, yes, absolutely. Uh, less than half of older people my age said that. So there was pessimism on the US side about, about that, S strong pessimism relative to, to younger people's views. Uh, you saw this at, at the margin on attitudes towards China. You saw this on, um, uh, you know, I, we, we have to kind of recognize that 
young people have formed a worldview in, in an era that, you know, frankly, may be ending. Um, you know, the economy may, may not be as strong. Um, uh, they certainly came of age and thought of China differently than say when I came of age and thought of China. Um, and um, uh, in issues that we didn't really talk about, but I think is interesting just in general, uh, as we worry about Vladimir Putin's threats of nuclear war, I grew up in an age when people practiced hiding under their desks for a nuclear attack. Um, so even though I'm sure I didn't quite know what that meant, I had to wrestle with the idea that there could be a nuclear Armageddon. Um, uh, I, I think many young people, it's like, this is just like, beyond the pale i mean it's like this would never happen uh and i think that that those kinds of differences are are things that we have to kind of struggle with as we deal with public opinion that um they may influence how people see various issues or various institutions let's linger a bit on china um okay because uh i, I think we all know that for the united states i mean very much focused on on the war and and Putin at the moment, but the big picture for the U.S. is is China. And I've I've heard people in Washington talking about you know uh, the, the 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 global theater which stretches from from Ukraine to to Taiwan. Um, how do what do we what do we get from are, are there much dif differences on the attitude to China between Europe and the United States? Well, what's very interesting first off is that as as you know, David, having having worked. Uh, in the external action service. Um, uh, the external action service uh, began using a, a, a pat phrase and the US had really adopted it too of, you know, China can be a partner, a competitor or a rival, right? Yeah. Very adroit diplomatic language <laughs> that hopefully doesn't <laughs> offend anybody. Well, we, we decided to ask that question to the public. And what we found is that 29% uh, of the public in the 14 countries said, we don't know, you know we, we don't have any, which is pretty high and pretty suggests that average people don't quite know how to, what to choose. More importantly, um, uh, between partner, competitor and rival, there was not a whole lot of difference. And, and frankly, I, I must admit, if I was asked that question, what's the difference between a rival and a competitor? I have no idea, <laughs> you know? Well, I think um, systemic rival was actually yes, the first. I, I think it would have been better, right? Uh, although, again, that suggests that people understood the word systemic. Uh, <laughs> and what's interesting is we, we I actually probed our, our folks because, you know, we do this uh, survey in, I don't know, 14 languages. And I said, you know, are we sure there are differences in particular languages between? And, and the Germans is, oh, yeah, yeah, just competitor rival, real big difference. In English, it's, I think it's less of a difference, right? Yeah. And God knows what it is in Lithuanian. Um, um, but so there's that question, that's issue. Um, there is the issue of um, how we treat China on a variety of issues. There's, there's strong unanimity. I mean, Europeans are more supportive of this than Americans, but Americans, majority of Americans also are uh, anxious to be tough on China about human rights. Uh, for many years at Pew, when I 
did surveys there. What was distinctive was that Europeans were worried about China's human rights record and Americans were worried about the economic competition uh, with China. Uh, over time in the Pew surveys, uh, the US became not less, not more worried about human rights, a little bit more worried, but the Europeans became a lot more worried about economic uh, issues with China. So we, there was a convergence going on, not complete convergence, but a convergence. So we asked people in this survey about uh, wanted to be tough on China, uh, uh, very strong support for being tough on human rights in China. But when you ask other questions about China, then you got different answers. Um, and I mean, one of the interesting things was uh, how should we manage relations with China? And as you know, David, uh, the EU and the US have an ongoing dialogue every six months or so about how to manage China together, which was an innovation actually that was launched by the EEAS, but picked up by the, the Trump administration and followed through by the Biden administration. Publics have no support for this. You know? <laughs> I mean, I, you know, there, there's just working with the United States, if you ask Europeans or working with Americans, ask you work with the Europeans, the EU to manage relations with China, it's not, there's not a whole lot of, of support for this. Right. Uh, is this a communications issue or it is just people don't understand how we do that, but there's certainly a long way to go to um, develop this public support for what I certainly sense is a, a growing recognition among, you know, elite bureaucrats and elite kind of foreign policy experts that we have to manage China together. Mm. That we can't, we can't we can't go separately. But our publics aren't there yet. Um, mm. um, they, for example, in in Europe, um, uh, most strongly support work work through the EU to deal with China. Makes sense, I guess. Econo but it also shows it's an economic issue as well as a human rights issue. Um, in terms of uh, other issues that relate to, to China, um, we did ask people, uh, what if, would you support a tougher approach on China regardless of the negative economic impact that might have? Interesting. Um, and a majority of the respondents, by, by about two to one, said, no, I'd be willing to support um, uh, being tougher on China, even if there was a negative blowback. In relation um, to human rights? Uh, in general? The question was just in, in general, right? I mean, and I mean, we have to take that with a bit of a grain of salt because, you know, people aren't necessarily feeling that negative blowback yet. So it's kind of easy to take the high moral ground, but it's also, I think, a good sign that if we were to impose more sanctions on China, th there would be some public support for that. Um, I mean, what's interesting is the people who weren't um, that interested were the Romanians and the Turks. I mean, they were the least likely to, to be willing to accept economic pain. Whereas the Spanish, the Swedes, the Canadians, the Dutch, the French, were the most likely to be willing to, to, in fact, they were all more likely than the US, the Americans to, to it, a majority of Americans were willing to do it, but it was, it, there's a number of Europeans that are much more supportive of that. 
Um, maybe after this long cold winter in Europe, there may be a slightly different view of that. You never right. know. Um, um, but uh, and then there's the the big question about uh, what if war breaks out over Taiwan? Um, and um, I must say, subsequent to our being in the field, when I was in Europe last 10 days, uh, talking about these survey results, the number of Europeans who said to me, what in the world is going on about Taiwan? I mean, there was a real sense that America was, uh, well, you can't, I can't say prodding the bear because the bear is Russia, but you know, prodding the the Chinese. <laughs> yeah, and um, you know, I tried to explain to people that Pelosi's visit to Taiwan actually was against the advice of the State Department in the White House, uh, but she went anyway. Uh, the, but there is the president's statement that we would defend Taiwan. Yeah, uh, multiple times he's said that in different ways which has never been actually articulated that strongly by an American president. Um, so you've got to presume it's what he really feels, what he really believes. Um, we, so we asked publics in Europe and America, and actually, since this was before the Pelosi visit, it was before the president's statement. It was more of a theoretical question. Would the Europeans be with us if America had to do something to help Taiwan? And um, European publics were most supportive of economic sanctions and diplomatic action. But when you ask any other kind of questions, would you be willing to send arms? Would you be willing to send troops? No, absolutely not. Um, uh, the overall survey results were, you know, only 4% in our survey said they'd be willing to send arms to Taiwan or only 2% to, to send troops. Uh, which is, you know, this is noise in the data. This is so, so small. Um, what was interesting is that only 8% of Americans are willing to send arms, which we already do. And only 7% were willing to send troops. Uh, as some one Pentagon official said to me when I briefed him on these uh, survey results, somebody needs to show these results to the president. <laughs> um, uh, so... Uh, on one hand, it's good. There's there's uh, a willingness in Europe to consider diplomatic or economic sanctions if China would invade Taiwan. But there's also no willingness, even among Americans, to get involved militarily with uh, uh, defending Taiwan, which, frankly, given the president's statements, I, I think I think we would probably do something. And, and the question is, would we have, would the Europeans have our back? And it's not at all clear that the European publics would be supportive of that. Yeah, very, very, very interesting. Did, did you, what did you learn um, about American attitudes about Europe or transatlantic relations? Well, I mean, you know, we, we didn't ask a lot of questions uh, about, you know, do you approve of the EU or do you approve of, of uh, I mean, we did ask people uh, if, you know, they they thought certain European countries were reliable actors, reliable, you know, partners. Um, Americans were much less likely to name a European country than Europeans were likely to name each other or America. Uh, and what I found 
a little bit disturbing, probably not surprising, was that the European country that Americans thought was the most reliable was the UK. And that and the most and they also said that they, they thought it had the greatest influence, you know, in the world and, and in Europe. And I thought, um, again, don't don't Americans know that they've left the EU? You know? right. Um, but I, you know, I, I, it's a reminder that in the hearts and minds of many Americans, the special relationship still exists, even yeah. though we know that, that, you know, certainly since Brexit, uh, and certainly now, um, there, there's no special love lost on a, in a practical way in terms of issues we're dealing with between Washington and London. Let's turn now to uh, precisely America's future uh, and the fact that that the, the concern that I would think that you you found reflected uh, in in the Europeans who sort of didn't didn't feel America would be as influential in 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 five years as it is today, which I would suggest flows from the the Trump experience and also perhaps from the continued polarization of the United mm -hmm. States. How are things looking for, for the midterms and, and how do you see that playing out and, well, and beyond to 2024? Yeah. First, first off, David, I would I would totally agree with you. I, I cannot tell you. I, I ran the Transatlantic Task Force for the German Marshall Fund um, uh, for two years. And in that course of that, I interviewed over 100 European uh, elites, basically, foreign policy experts, politicians, etc. I would say in, I don't know, 95 of those interviews, 97 of them, um, at some point in the interview, people would say in one way or the other, it's not that I don't like America, it's not that I don't like Americans, but I do not trust your political system anymore. And I think that the strength of American soft power, the kind of sense that our democracy, as confusing as it can be and, you know, uh, difficult to deal with at times that that we can kind of count on it to produce administrations we can work with and we'll fight over but we'll work together and um that the trump era created a an uncertainty in the minds of europeans that i think americans don't fully appreciate i mean the pew research center uh, did a question uh, a couple of years ago where they asked people is American democracy a model for your country? And uh, a majority of Europeans said no. I don't think Americans understand that. And, but I think that there's, as you say, there, this is what we're picking up in this data. We don't, again, we, you know, we didn't ask follow-up questions, so we don't quite know uh, what people were thinking, but I don't think they would know either. They just know that they can't trust the United States in the way they, they, intuitively thought they could. And um, this election, uh, I think people believe quite strongly that the House of Representatives, which is now controlled by the Democrats, will uh, end up being controlled by the Republicans. Um, the president's public opinion rating is in the low 40s, depending on the survey you look at. Historically, when a president's uh, approval rating is in the low 40s, his party loses an average of 37 seats in the House of Representatives. Um, they only have to lose like five or six to lose control of the House of Representatives. 
So they're going to lose control of the House of Representatives. The question really is whether it's by 30 to 40 seats or 10 to 20 seats. Some people now think it may be just 10 to 20 seats, but it doesn't really matter. You, you, you get to decide what legislation is considered. You get to hold committee hearings and run, you're the chair, you chair all the committees. What will happen is that the Republicans have promised, and I think we can you know, bet on this, they will launch a series of investigations of the Biden administration. And those investigations will have an impact because even if they don't find anything, even if there's, it doesn't lead to anything, um, for example, they promised to investigate President Biden's son and his business dealings. That's already been done and they couldn't find anything, but that's not going to keep them back from doing it again. And his business dealings were initially with Ukraine. And um, this will, in certain quarters in American public, begin to poison the well about Ukraine. Oh, this is really a corrupt country. What are we doing supporting these people, et cetera? Uh, feeding a, a Republican narrative that's now really on the extreme right of the Republican Party that we shouldn't be helping Ukraine. Uh, so this will have potentially consequences in terms of undermining some sectors of the American public support for Ukraine. So we need to worry about that. Um, there will be an investigation of Afghanistan and the pullout. There'll be an investigation of the FBI and the Justice Department because God forbid they actually try to get back national security documents from the former president, um, uh, things like that. Um, and I, I don't think we should rule out the possibility that there will be articles of impeachment filed and they will try to impeach the president. That then show, that turns to the importance of what happens in the Senate. Right now, it, it, I think it's anybody's guess. It's a 50-50 Senate. It could go one seat either way. Uh, I think the Democrats probably can hold on to the Senate, whether they do or not. I think it's a different story. Um, they both have uh, some questionable candidates that I would argue the Republicans have far more questionable candidates than the Democrats, but this is American politics. Um, but um, uh, if, if the Republicans gain control of the Senate, then, well, while I don't expect much legislative action for the next two years, um, if the Republicans gain control of the Senate, that means that even simple things, what should be simple, like finally filling some ambassadorial posts, which the U.S. is, is at this there's still like a third or more of, of ambassadorship are still un, unfilled. Uh, or filled and filling judges seats. I mean, things things that should be the natural order of doing business in a legislative process, which have already broken down to a certain extent, would, would just completely stop. Um, so we we could have total stasis in Washington. And um, you know, this doesn't help the image of the United States. It doesn't help the US getting stuff done, uh, you know, passing new climate change legislation or passing other things that affect other people. Uh, and um, House Republican staffers uh, who work on these issues have already told me they think even though they think they can continue to get money out of the House from Ukraine, and bear in mind the Congress has consistently given Ukraine more money than the administration asks for in, in every tranche of, of requests, um, these staffers say once we control, it's going to be harder. Uh, don't expect, you know, us topping up stuff. And um, 
we should bear in mind that there's a poll that's been done a number of times now where, you, where the public is asked, are we doing too much about an about right or not enough for Ukraine? And um, just as a warning to all the listeners, when you see a poll that asks three, gives people three options, you're invariably going to get the middle option to be the one that people pick because they really <laughs> don't know and they don't want to, they want to look stupid. But um, uh, what's interesting in this poll about Ukraine aid is that the percentage of Republicans who say we're doing too much has gone up and the percentage of Republicans who say we're not doing enough has gone down. They're still both minority numbers, but they're changing. Yeah. And that bears watching because that will that continue. And then that translates into greater support in a Republican controlled house, not to not to continue the support for Ukraine. So I think we, there's a lot of consequences here that may play out in the next two years. And there's been quite a lot of criticism uh, in, in, in the press and on Twitter and elsewhere uh, from the US about the fact that the Europeans are not doing enough for Ukraine uh, in terms of economic aid, military aid. Again, you have the UK has done a huge amount. Germany is starting to ramp up, France starting to ramp up. Um, how much of that do you think will, 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 will that mood settle that Europe, is, I mean, I would argue that you know, it, it doesn't factor in, for example, what we're doing on refugees or, and, and some of the other money which has been spent, the economic consequences of the whole situation, which are much harder on Europe than they are in the US. But um, there, there is this distinct feeling that the Europeans are not doing enough. Well, I think there's, there's a, a precedent for this. I mean, in the sense that when we were only having debates over 2% on defense, <laughs> as opposed to bigger debates, um, Europeans would, I think, honestly and 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 accurately said look you know we have done more to secure the stability of europe by seat by the eu accession of these eastern european countries of poland and romania and czechoslovakia etc uh and we get no credit for that even though it's cost us a lot of money uh and it's true americans like and your point is what you know i mean <laughs> they were fixated on this two point this per, two percentage number and I think we're still we're in the same boat again, in the sense that you're absolutely right. Um, uh, European countries, especially those uh, along the border with Ukraine, are, are spending uh, sizable portions of their GDP on refugee assistance. And and it's not that senior American officials don't get it. I, they've said to me, oh, yeah, we understand there's been a lot of money on refugees. There's always a but in that sentence. <laughs> but. You know, we have given so much more in like fiscal support. Obviously, we've given much more in military support. And when are the Europeans going to step up? And uh, and we know that that the European Union has promised more than it's delivered. So there's they're you know culpable in that way. Um, I think this problem is only going to grow. It's going to grow because there will be a Republican minority probably of politicians, but a growing number of politicians who will say, you know, we've done enough. Let's, God willing, the, the fighting's over. Now we can get out. We don't have to do any more. Let the Europeans take care of it. There'll be that. Um, and um, the reality is, I think the fight that is now going on between Brussels and Berlin and some of the other uh, frugal countries about how we pay for this 
uh, is only going to become more apparent to people. And uh, frankly, I think at the end of the day, Americans won't care how Europe pays for it. But if it, but if basically there's another year of bickering about how to pay for it, and as a result, the money is never forthcoming, um, uh, it will only feed the American um, narrative that we do everything and the Europeans don't do anything, which is of course false. But you know, there there are public opinion surveys we did at Pew that show that the public, American public, believes that that we bear the burdens of the world and no one else helps us. Again, that is factually incorrect, but it, it feeds this, it's part of this narrative that Americans tell themselves and Donald Trump played on this a great deal. Uh, we are the victims, you know, we, we are, uh, woe is us, you know, we bear all these burdens, we're victimized by the world and it feeds the isolationist narrative, right? That we should turn yeah. our back to the world. And we talked about the midterms. Let's talk briefly before we finish on 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 twenty twenty four and the right. presidential. What's your um, how is look, that shaping? Uh, there are polls out there that show that a majority of Democrats would like someone else to run rather than Biden. Biden actually has said now a number of times to various people that he's going to run, and that has leaked to the press, etc. So uh, I think we have to presume he's going to run. Um, I think, you know, he ran in 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 2020 in part because Trump was running again, and he thought, uh, you know, I'm he accurately believed that I'm the only one who can beat him, and he was right. Um, so I think he's he feels a sense of mission, but he will be 80 years old this year. That means he'll be 82 <laughs> at some point. Um, around the next election. And uh, that would be the oldest president we've ever had by far. Um, and so, uh, I mean, one has to worry about his health, basically. Um, but I think he will run if he's healthy, uh, despite the fact that a majority of Democrats don't want him to run again. Uh, and I think the question for the Democratic Party would be, um, I think, Vice President Harris would be the likely uh, uh, candidate if he didn't run. And, you know, frankly, the Democratic Party is so dependent on the female vote and the black vote. I don't see how you deny the nomination to a black female. I, I just don't. I don't know how you do that. Uh, whether she would be the best candidate against Trump. So let's assume Trump is. I don't know. Uh, but I and, you know, you could have a very divisive primary where People say, oh, I would do better than she would against Trump. And so I'm going to, you just don't know. Um, yeah. I think Trump is the likely candidate in 2024. He keeps saying that he's going to do that. Um, we're likely to hear on the campaign trail and get, go back to foreign policy for a minute. Uh, more and more uh, statements, which he's already made that, you know, this would have never happened. This war would have never happened if I were president. Uh, I know Putin, et cetera. Um, he's actually said that the U.S. provoked Russia to invade Ukraine. It's somehow our fault. Um, and uh, this, some of these foreign policy issues could play very big um, in this coming election, especially if the war is continuing and, and there's war fatigue begins to settle in in the United States. And, and, and to go back to some point that I, I should have made when we were talking about China is that I, I firmly believe that despite the distraction, quote unquote, 
of the Ukrainian war, um, the pivot, America's pivot to Asia is going to come back. Yeah. It's just a question of when. And, and the question is, if Trump doesn't run, who runs? I think it's Governor DeSantis of Florida is probably the odds on favorite. Bruce, we've run out of time. Thank you so much. This has been a delight, as always. I'll be back after the midterms, you know, and see, see, see how and things show, are. How wrong I was about the... Uh... <laughs> All right. Okay, take care. Thanks Thank a lot. Thank you. Thank you very Bye. much. Bye now.